uh, that, that's all we have for announcements. Uh, we're going to look now at uh, Matthew chapter 5. We, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount for uh, four months, actually, uh, looking at just little bits at a time. And um, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew 5, verses 6 to 8, but I'm actually going to start in verse 3 just so that we can, these are called the Beatitudes of, of Jesus, the opening to the Sermon on the Mount, and I kind of want to read them all together because they, they all um, flow with each other, and uh, there's kind of a movement and a progression that goes through them. So um, this is uh, the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that the same spirit that inspired these words, that even gave these words to Jesus, that um, aided Matthew as he wrote them down, that that your same spirit, that he would be here teaching us and applying these words, opening them to us as uh, we meet together as your people. So we ask you to be our teacher, and we ask that you would open our hearts, and we open our hearts to you. Because we love you, we love your word, and we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we are uh, looking this morning at the beginning of Jesus' teaching on on holiness. Uh, What does a holy life look like, a godly life, a righteous life? Um, What does Jesus have to say? about what it looks like. And actually, last week, if you were here last week, we looked at the first three Beatitudes. And the first three Beatitudes are kind of, you might call them Beatitudes of need. They, you know, we talked last week about how the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, this is what it looks like to be one of my disciples. And yet he begins it by not telling us to do anything. He tells us, actually, not what we should do, but what we, what we don't do, how empty we are. There are these Beatitudes of need. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are spiritual failures, Jesus blesses. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. That's the the, those who have no power, you know, social power in the world, uh, who the 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 world has no need for. Jesus says they're blessed. So the beginning is for Jesus. uh, We experience Jesus' blessing. We come to Him empty-handed, and He pronounces His blessing on it. So that's how He begins the Sermon on the Mount. But then, in the fourth beatitude, a transition happens. And uh, because what happens is when we hear those Beatitudes, when those really hit our hearts, that Jesus blesses the poor in spirit, when you come to him as a spiritual failure and he still blesses you, when you come to him brokenhearted and he blesses you, when you come to him powerless and he blesses you, what you're encountering is Jesus' holiness, that how he is a friend of sinners and he loves us. And when you really experience that, what is going to happen inside of you is you are going to say, I want to be like him. Jesus is, is a friend of the weak. He's a friend to the poor. He's a friend of the brokenhearted. He was a friend of me, and now I want to become like him. And you can see that desire in the fourth beatitude there in verse 6 where Jesus says there's this transition in the beatitudes. The first three are beatitudes of need, and then there's this transition where he says, blessed are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's us saying, I want to be like him. If Jesus says, if you want to become like me, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. I will give it to you. And, um, and so that even though Jesus invites us to come to him empty-handed, he also wants to create in us a new kind of life, a transformation in the way we live, a transformation of our hearts. He wants to reform us. He wants to form in us holiness. And let me just tell you that personal holiness for each of us, it just as individuals, as a community, as a church, is, is tremendously important um, uh, as, as a part of our spiritual life and as our witness in, in Bellingham and in this community and in our families. And actually, there was a, a, in, in the 19th century, there was a, a Scottish pastor uh, named Robert Murray McShane. Uh, he was actually uh, pastored a very small church in Dundee, was not particularly well known. He actually died when he was 29. And uh, he pastored you know, a small church. And actually, the church that he was preaching in, uh, you know, there was maybe moderate growth while he was there. And then he went on a mission uh, to Palestine because he wanted to be a missionary to the Jews. And he left. And as soon as he left and the you know, interim pastor came in, there was this huge revival as soon as he left. And um, so there was something kind of unremarkable uh, about his ministry. And yet Robert Merrick McShane, uh, even though he died very young, 29, he basically worked himself to death. He, um, his memoirs, his sermons, his letters were gathered together by his close friend, uh, Andrew Bonar, and now they've never gone out of print. You know, 170, 180 years later, uh, they've never gone out of print, and they're these deeply uh, pastoral, poetic uh, letters. And one of the things, McShane has a famous quote where he talked about his ministry as a pastor, and he said that my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. As a pastor, what I have most to give them is my life lived with Jesus. More than uh, you know, being a great preacher, more than being a great organizer and a great leader and being inspiring, the, the quality of my life. And that's equally true for each one of us, uh, whether that's in our families, whether that's in our workplace, whether that's in our dormitory, the thing that we most have to offer people is our personal holiness. And so this uh, raises um, a, a, uh, a big question for us about, about what is holiness, where does it come from. And so what I want to uh, do this morning is we look at these next Beatitudes as Jesus makes a transition in them. I want to answer two questions. First of all, where does holiness come from? And second, what does holiness look like? Um, and my hope is, as we look at just a, a couple verses here, that you would see that holiness is, is not a burdensome thing. It's not something to weigh you down and to make you feel bad about yourself. It is just a beautiful quality of life, and it's a part of God's grace to you. It's part of what Jesus wants to form in you, part of his promise to you to make you like him. So, two questions. Uh, where does holiness come from, and what does holiness look like? And the first, this where does holiness come from? And uh, this is an important question. How do, you, how do you become holy? How does that transformation in your life happen? And I tell you why it's an important question, because uh, for most people, when they become Christians, you know, many people go to camp or they go somewhere where they hear the gospel message for the first time. And, you know, if, uh, 
if you're in, involved in young life or something like that, you go up to Malibu and it's this beautiful place. Everyone's loving each other and there's this great feeling and, it's, and, and the message is God loves you no matter what. No matter what you've done in your life, he will forgive it, he will wash it away and he will make you his son, he will make you his child and you say, yes, I want it, I'm in. And then you get into the Christian life and uh, the main message after that, after day one, is, all right, now you've got some work to do. Now, uh, now it's time to gut it out. Now it's time to, uh, to meet God's standards. And all of a sudden, God switched from that first message of grace and come and be my child. And now he switched to this taskmaster who, who, who's uh, laying burdens on me. And, um, and it's kind of this bait and switch. But one of the things for us to first understand about where does holiness come from is, um, is that that bait-and-switch is a deep failure to understand Jesus' teaching. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we're, we're Presbyterian church, and we have you know, kind of a doctoral standard. It was written in the 1640s. This is a great exposition of, of the Christian faith. And in the Shorter Catechism, it has uh, this question, what is, what is sanctification? Sanctification means is the process of becoming holy, right? To sanctify. How do I become holy? What is, what is the process of becoming a new person, of becoming like Jesus, of becoming transformed? And this is what it says. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and, and to live under righteousness. That amazing statement that how your life changes is a work of God. It's not your work, and it's a work of free grace. It's something that you don't earn, that, you don't, uh, that, that God is going to do in you. So where does, where does holiness come from? It comes from God. It's a gift to us. And um, this is precisely what Jesus says in verse 6 when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. God will do that work. He will give them the thing that they're hungering and thirsting for. So where does holiness come from? It comes from God. But also this verse also tells us how it comes. So it comes from God, but how? How does it work? And we see a couple things. First of all, that holiness comes to us from having a longing for it, from longing, a desire. And, uh, you know, Jesus uses this this image of hungering and thirsting uh, for righteousness and that God will give to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he will give it to them. If we long for it, if I long to be changed, I long for my anger to be changed. I long to be more patient and gener- uh, more generous uh, with the things that I have, more generous with my time. I long to listen to people better. I long to serve them more. God promises us to give it if we simply desire, if we long for it. And this understanding... Um, it's important to understand that this longing, this hunger and thirst for righteousness is, um, is something that has kind of a personal, individual aspect, but also has a whole societal aspect to it. So on the one hand, um, that it, it, this is a personal longing. That I long, you know, he says, you, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, is that I hunger and thirst for righteousness within myself. And I think that in this regard, this is one of, you know, if there are verses to memorize in the, in the Bible, I think this is a great one. Because um, a, a big part of the Christian life and growing in the Christian life is knowing the promises of God and then saying them to him. 
And to have this on your tongue, they say, Jesus, you said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they shall be satisfied. You've promised that. And my life, you know, I, I, I'm having conflict with my wife or with my kids or, or um, you know, I, I'm feeling uh, tempted in all kinds of ways. And I feel like I'm continually f- failing uh, in all kinds of sins to be able and bring this promise to God that you promise that you will fill those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And actually, we uh, just a couple months ago, uh, Lucy and I, my daughter is eight, we were talking about something. We had some kind of conflict that we were working through, and she had asked me to pray for her. And I was praying for her, and, you know, I kind of quoted this somehow in the prayer. I said, you know, Lord, you bless those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so we look to you that you would fill us. And at the end of the prayer, she said, what was that thing you were talking about, hunger? And I like that. I like what that is. You know, and even, even for her, of this whole prayer of her dad, you know, pastor dad praying, you know, the thing, the words that stuck out to her, the words that had real power in the prayer were the words of Jesus because she could sense that in them was real promise. There was something in those words that actually spoke to her actual condition. And she says, yes, that's me. I, I, long, I hunger and I thirst, but I don't have it. It needs to be given to me. And Jesus is promising us here. And so to have these words at hand. So there, there's this personal longing for my own transformation But also, Jesus has a vision for a societal longing, a transformation of society. This is not just about my personal piety, my own personal uh, spiritual life that Jesus is talking about. He's also talking about a longing for God to do something in society, in the world, among humanity, in my community. And uh, to give you, you know, I've been reading through Job uh, in my my personal devotions, and um, Job gives some beautiful descriptions of what righteousness is. Let me read one to you. This is what he says in Job Job 29. He says, I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. That uh, there is a longing for there to be, he has a longing, there's people who can't see, that they can't walk, they don't have fathers, they don't have families. And I want, I long for God to mend those things. And that, that, that's what we hunger for, for righteousness. It's not just that, that in my closet, in my relationship with God, that there would be some kind of wholeness, but that there would be a wholeness in my whole community. And so, you know, Lisa's coming up here talking about these are single moms, and, and to have a longing that, that, that the kids that are grow, that growing up without dads or in at-risk families, that they, that, um, that they would feel loved, that they would feel cherished, that they would know that there's a God who cares for them. And so part of when, it, when we say we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not just that Nate, you know, has a holy life, but that there is righteousness reigns in Bellingham and in Whatcom County. So that's part of the longing, too. It's not just a personal longing. And... Um, uh, it's a longing uh, for, hum- uh, for human flourishing. And, um, and so holiness comes to us when we have that longing to see God's work in the world and in my own life. So the holiness comes through longing, but it also comes through promise. Holiness comes to us 
through trusting in the promises of God. And one of the, the big takeaways from the Beatitudes, these are these, these first statements that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, is that they are charged with promises to us, right? So you read through them, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they, uh, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. Promise, 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 promise. And the way that Jesus is saying, the way that we become holy is that we take hold of the promises of God and we trust in them and we rest in them. We know what they are. And they are the source and center of our life. And so here um, he is, uh, you know, this promise that I will be filled. Right? You know, this word where it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think every other use of that word in the, uh, in, in the Gospels is talking literally about food. There were people who were hungry, and they ate, and they were filled. Their stomachs were filled. And, you know, I like that bodily image. You know, that when, when God says he, when Jesus says he, he will f- fill us, satisfy our bodies with righteousness, that our bodies will become, um, you know, not just our souls, but our bodies will become places that are, you know, hands and feet, as Lisa talked about, of righteousness. That in our flesh, we become a picture of who God is and what God is like and his glory. And so we'll be, um, there's a promise that we'll be uh, personally filled, but also there's a promise about society and about the world. And what happens is what Jesus tells us to do in this passage is the, the, the way that holiness forms in us is when we begin to have an imagination about what God is going to do in his creation and in his universe. Because many of these promises, what, where do they tell us to look? They tell us to look to the future, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They, will, they shall inherit the earth. They shall be comforted. Um, you know, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they sh- will be shown mercy. When God comes, uh, God will show mercy to us when we stand before him. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When, God uh, when Jesus comes again, we will see him. And so what Jesus is doing in the beginning of how are we going to be his disciples and, and, um, and live as his disciples in the world and um, have a life that that's, has that quality of holiness, he says that our minds, our imaginations should be on the future. And that we look to the future and we see that, that this world that is broken right now is groaning and waiting for Jesus to come and to make all things new in this creation. He's not going to scrap this creation and we're all going to float off to heaven. He's going to take this creation and, he, uh, and he's going to renew it. That's why Jesus tells us to pray, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if any of you, you know, have, whenever anyone sets out to do something, uh, you know, whether it's get a job or they're going to go to school, a huge part of accomplishing things in life, right, is that you have a goal. You, you see where you're going. You know, I I'm, I'm, I have a vision for my life. And that's what Jesus is doing. Is he says, God is going to restore this earth. And when our hearts, this, this vision of a new world is living inside of us, the promise of that new world, it begins to come out of us. It begins to shine in us. It begins to be a joy. And that people see that new world in us even before it comes. So that's why when Jesus, you know, Paul prays that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are new creation. You are a new creation. You are a chunk of that new world that Jesus is going to make plop down into the middle of the old world. And so that's what holiness is. It comes from a longing for, for God to work in me and in society and from resting on these promises, okay? So, um, and that means that 
in both of those, the longing and the promise says that holiness in our lives comes as a gift from God. But second, um, what does holiness look like? If that's where it comes from, it comes from God, what does holiness look like in our life? It, when, when the life of Jesus is begin to form in us, what, how will you recognize it in people? How will people recognize it in me? And um, this is, you know, this is actually important because for many of you, you know, maybe when you saw that the title of the sermon was holiness, maybe you're like, eh, all right, we'll see if that's something I really want to hear about. Um, you know, holiness is not necessarily a positive thing that is an attractive quality in people, you know, uh, that we're drawn to. Um, but I, I put a quote for you from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he, he has a correspondence with a, an American lady that, that were compiled into a book and, um, in one of the letters, this is what he writes. This is on page three of your bulletin. I am so glad you gave me an account of the lovely priest. And this is what he says. How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, and perhaps like you, I've met it only once, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before year's end. He says that true holiness, when, when the life of Jesus is being formed in us, it is something that attracts people. It's not repellent. It's not cold. It's not distance. It's something that draws people. And so what does uh, Jesus say um, holiness looks like? And in these Beatitudes, he begins to paint a picture for us. And the first thing is this, that holiness on the outside looks like mercy. The mark of holiness in a person that you see visibly is that it looks like mercy in them. And, uh, you know, so like I was saying, the first three beatitudes are these beatitudes of need. And then there's this hinge beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then there's a transition where Jesus now begins to describe a new life that we have in him. And the first description he gives of a transformed life is blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who do not give to people what they deserve. You know, they, they don't, uh, they don't uh, come down on people. They're patient with people. Uh, they're slow to anger. They, um, they want to uh, look past offenses. This is the mark that holiness is beginning uh, to grow inside someone, and, you know, which is interesting that that's what Jesus puts as the first quality of holiness because that's usually not what we think of holiness, right? Because you know, the most common use of the word holiness in our culture is that people are holier, you know, that person thinks they're holier than thou, right? Which means, to be holy means that you're judgmental, you're condemning, uh, you're harsh, you're stern, you're merciless. We generally think of holiness as being marked by a kind of merciless uh, attitude towards people, but, um, but Jesus says here that if the life of God has begun to take root in you, in us, it will look like mercy, or as the Proverbs say, it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Let me just tell you if, you, if people have wronged you, just know the scriptures say it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Be freed by that. You know, I need to exact uh, what's just from this person. They have wronged me. You know what? You're actually free to let it go. And, 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 and the Bible says that that is your glory, that you were reflecting to the world what God is like if you just let it go. 
And um, one of my favorite commentators on Matthew, who I've been reading a lot as we've been going through together, is a guy named Dale Bruner. And um, he he makes a comment about this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this is what he says. There is a morality that hardens. There's a kind of morality, there's a kind of desire to be good that actually makes you hard. And this, this is how he says it. There's a morality that hardens that makes one more severe with others the more one has learned to be severe with oneself. And this is generally what happens with holiness. When someone pursues holiness, they're trying to be good, they're trying to be good, they're trying to be good, and so then they look at other people and, it's, and, and they take this same uh, stern harshness that they apply to themselves and they apply it to everyone around them. And that's why we get this picture of holiness being a cold, distant, unattractive quality in people. And he says this, this is a tempting route for sacrifice-centered, spiritual disciplines-focused, perfectionist, higher life, and consciousness-raising ethics. But the first test of obedience to Jesus' ethic is not whether obedience makes one morally tougher. The evidence that you're obeying Jesus is not shown that you are morally tough on people, but whether it also makes one mercifully softer. And so let me just ask you, as you become more devoted to Jesus, do people say of you that you are becoming softer or tougher on them? Are you more patient? Are you more gentle with them? Do you look, overlook more offenses? Or do, you, uh, or do more offenses become obvious to you as you become more devoted to Jesus? Do people open up their lives to you more or less? Do people show, them, show you kind of the secret things that are on their life and, and trust you with, uh, with uh, in confidence, information that they, they don't want people to know? Do they do that more as you become devoted to Jesus or less? Do friends or family or your ch- children constantly wonder whether they are living up to your standard? If that's the case, that we are becoming sterner and harsher on people, then uh, what we call holiness is actually the opposite of what Jesus describes as holiness. It is the opposite. The first picture in the transition of a life is that we become merciful to people, we become gentle. And, um, and of course, uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is going to say more about being judgmental of people. You know, his famous, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible is in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not lest ye be judged. And he says, you know, don't, Try to get the speck out of your neighbor's eye when you have a plank in your own eye. You know, don't be a hypocrite. Look at your own sin instead of the sins of other people. But one of the things I want to point out is that Jesus' understanding of mercy is not the same as kind of our culture's understanding of tolerance. So, you know, tolerance has become the kind of great virtue uh, of, you know, you know, modern Western society. And uh, the, one of the big differences is that tolerance is, has a sense of indifference to it. It's kind of say, listen, do what you want to do, live your life. As long as it doesn't hurt me, who am I to say that you've done anything wrong? There's not a personal relationship, a, a, a closeness. There's not a, a, you know, a going after the person. It's not love. Tolerance is not love. Jesus' vision of mercy has this deep relationship goal uh, inside of it. And so um, when Jesus says that, we sh- that this calling to be merciful... It does not mean that we just say, hey, do whatever you want to do. I have no moral convictions. So how do we do mercy? What defines the fact that we can overlook people's offenses? How can we we have moral conviction and overlook people's offenses? How can we do both of those? 
And of course, the answer is the cross. It doesn't go by making our moral convictions lax, because what did God do for us? Did he, did he lax, you know, let go of his moral convictions in order so he can forgive us? No. What did he do? He took Jesus and put him on the cross, and Jesus was crucified, took the punishment for our sin. And what God is saying is, I don't tolerate sin. I hate sin, and it needs to be punished, and so it was punished on the cross. And yet the cross also tells us that God dearly loves us and that he wants to pursue a relationship. He wants us to be his children. And so the reason we overlook offenses is because when someone does something that doesn't meet our moral standards, we're not letting go of our moral standard, but we look back to the cross and we say, I didn't meet God's moral standard. And yet uh, Jesus suffered for me and he overlooked it. And so how can I not overlook this for you? How can I not be patient? How can I not come down on you? How can I not turn around and say, gosh, there's this moral, you're, you're falling short of this moral standard. I'm probably falling short of that moral standard somewhere in my own life. So I'm going to let you be a teacher to me so I can see my own sin. And, uh, and so mercy comes from us looking to the cross. And it does not come from uh, letting go of our moral standards. It comes from um, the profound love that Jesus has for us. And so it's when we have internalized the love for Jesus, we can't help but overlook people's offenses. So holiness on the outside, what does holiness look like? It looks like on the outside mercy. That's the big thing. Gentleness, patience, kindness, overlooking offenses. But secondly, holiness on the inside looks like purity. Holiness on the inside looks like purity. And you see that there in verse 8 where Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. So now he's, you see how he's transitioning. The first three are beatitudes of need. Then he, he has this hinge, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then the next three are blessed are the merciful, those who are pure in heart, and the peacemakers. This is now describing our new life in Jesus. And he, he, the second thing is that holiness on the inside looks like purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think maybe the greatest promise in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, what does Jesus mean by being pure in heart? Now, if, if you're a guy and you've ever been in an accountability group, then pure in heart means lust. You know, is there lust in your heart? And actually, is that what purity in heart means, is that you don't have lust in your heart? There's something of that in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the... Um, where in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus use the word heart or talk about what's in our heart? The next place is, you know, if you lust after a woman in your heart, uh, then you're, you've committed adultery. So there is some sense of that, but actually I think there's a deeper meaning, uh, more profound meaning as you look in the Sermon on the Mount and, and you look at the rest of the Bible of what purity in heart means. And this is what Jesus says, uh, I, I think it's in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves... um, uh, Wait, I I wrote this wrong in here, sorry. Uh, um, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor uh, rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. 
Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question of purity in heart, of what's in my heart, is my heart corrupted, has to do, it's not just a lust thing, it's a much broader question of what is the treasure in my heart? What do I treasure most? And uh, actually, uh, purity in heart is treasuring God most. This is Psalm 24, says a similar thing. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And so purity of heart uh, does not uh, simply mean, that it does not mean that you don't have bad or lustful thoughts, that you're, you're free from sin. You know, I never have sinful thoughts that come into, my, come into my heart. That's not what purity of heart is. Purity of heart is that my greatest treasure, my ultimate devotion is to God. There is nothing, you know what we were just singing uh, uh, in that song, um, Lonely Woe, uh, can, is there anything on earth that can compare to Jesus? That he has become the center of my hope and my life and, and my devotion. I rest in his promises. He's the one who changes me. He's the, the one who defines my relationships and my families. He's the word of truth that I look to and that I love him. And it's like uh, that, that song that we sang last week, um, Fernando Ortega song who says, uh, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. That's a description of purity of heart. It's not that, I, that I, I'm free from sin, no. It's that as a sinner, I found that I have no other savior. I have no, no one else who can satisfy the deep longings of my heart. And there's no one else that can transform me except for Jesus. And um, so it is this exclusive love that Jesus describes as holiness. So what I want to give you a picture of is we're going to talk about blessed are the peacemakers next week. But this is such a simple picture of what holiness is. Is On the outside, it looks like being merciful. And on the inside, it looks like an exclusive devotion to Jesus. Jesus is my greatest love. Simple. It's not a pile of burdens. It's not a pile of rules and rituals that God is, is um, heaping on us that if we can you know, hold them all on our shoulders and we can keep them up, then he will finally love us. No, it is a simple picture because Jesus has already done everything to approve us before God. We don't have to uh, work and do rituals and, and do all kinds of religious activities to try to please God. Jesus has done everything to make us acceptable with God. And so our response is this simplicity of life that Jesus is everything. And because he's been everything to me, I can't help but show mercy to others. It's that holiness that is irresistible, that is attractive, and when God forms that in this community, it, uh, people will be drawn to it. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for these simple and yet compelling words We are here and we tell you that our deepest desire is that we might see you. You say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We long to see you on the day when you come again, when we are with you. But even now that you would give us eyes of faith, open the eyes of our hearts, that we might behold your glory, that um, you are worth all things, and and that your holiness would draw us And that as we are drawn to your holiness, it would form inside of us and it would draw others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.